And amen. Well, we're going to talk this morning about Ephesians chapter 3. And uh, kind of set the tone, I want to talk about one of my favorite movies from the past few years. It's called Bernie. How many of you have seen Bernie? Anyone? Okay, nobody. Awesome. <laughs> this is pretty rad. Uh, it's a comedy. It's kind of a dark comedy, though. It's based on the true story of a guy named Bernie Teed. And uh, Teed is a funeral director in Carthage, Texas. And he's a devout Christian man. And um, Jack Black is stinking talented. I mean, that guy could play anything. He sings well. He plays the guitar. I mean, he can act well. He could probably dunk a basketball. I don't know, but he probably could. Um, Jack Black is amazing. And, and so basically, Jack plays this guy named Bernie T that lives in Carthage, and he's the nicest guy in town. Nicest guy. A devout Christian man, the kind of guy who drives around singing hymns in his car. He's, he's almost too nice. You know what I'm talking about, too nice? You know, there's nice, and there's like too nice where it's kind of like creepy. You're like, man, that guy's a little too nice. I don't know about that dude. You know what I'm talking about? Like, that's how he is in this movie. And so Bernie is, he's super, super nice. And what makes it very kind of interesting is that Bernie falls in love with Marjorie Nugent. And Marjorie is more than twice his age. She's 81 years old, and she's, by all accounts, the rudest woman in town. Like, she's aloof. She's negative about everything. And so the most happy, joyful guy in the town falls in love with this lady, who you know, obviously takes advantage. I don't, that's probably love from 1 Corinthians 13. I don't know. Love probably does that. But um, it, this is something here where it, it doesn't make sense to people. Why in the world does Bernie fall for a lady twice his age that's always complaining? And so it, it kind of like it, it stumps people. But the movie takes a surprising turn. When after lunch one day, um, Marjorie's just, she's just been beating up on Bernie. I mean, she's like blasting him, and she's controlling, and he has a cell phone, and he has to answer his beeper whenever she wants him, and it's just this dysfunctional situation. Well, the movie takes a sudden turn when they come back from lunch one day, and Bernie picks up a rifle and shoots her in the back four times. I know, you're like, what? This is one of your favorite movies, Jeff? I don't um, he shoots her, he kills her, and he actually, he, he stores her in a freezer. The cops come, he's arrested, and he goes to prison. That's the movie. You have to kind of see it. I guess you had to be there, they say, you know what I'm saying? Um, you had to see the movie to understand why, I guess, why I like it so much. Um, but the reason I use this movie, like, where in the heck are we going, bro? Um, the reason why I use this is because this is how the world views Christianity. Because Bernie's based on a true story, all right? Jack Black plays a real guy, Bernie Teed, right? This is not made up. It's not fiction. This is reality. And this is how the world views Christianity. We're a bunch of Bernies. We're devout. We're dedicated. But we're naive. So we, we dress up. You know, we wear a sweater vest and we come on Sundays. We got a big old funky mustache. But we ain't got no power to deal with the real life circumstances like dysfunctional relationships, and so the, the world looks at the church and says, bunch of Bernies, yeah, I understand, yeah, you go to church and you, you worship the big mystical man in the sky, but at the end of the day, you don't have any power to deal with the real situations in life. That's how the world views us. We're hypocrites. We're devoted, but we're like, we're like the lady from the office. You know, she's this Bible-thumping I forgot her name. What's the, what's the lady's name from The Office, honey? That's this. Angela. Some of y'all know that. Some of y'all watch The Office. Angela, she's a Bible thumper, but she's in deep denial about the realities and the sin in her own life, and there's nothing she can do about it. That's how the world views Christianity. In fact, one of the biggest questions that I get from people that don't go to church 
is uh, they always ask me, they say, why in the world are Christians often worse than people that I know that aren't Christians? Why are so many professing Christians so Bernie-esque? And the, the first thing I say, there's two reasons, really. The first reason is not everybody who claims to be a Christian is a Christian. That's the first reason, right? That's because 2 Corinthians 5 says this, any man that's in Christ is a new creation. You've left the old caterpillar stage and now you're a butterfly, Right? So you've got new power now, and that issue is in a transformed life. And so I tell people, I said, listen, not everybody who claims to be a Christian is a Christian. That's the first reason why some people that say, yeah, I'm, I'm down with Jesus, don't live any different. You know, when I was in seminary, there, there was a guy who, he lived in the apartment complex, like right across from me, and uh, he loved to, to smoke Swisher Sweet Cigars. And I, I, don't, I don't know why, I've always loved the smell of a Swisher Sweet Cigar, so I'd like, you know, I'd venture down when I smelled them and... You know, we talk, and I developed a relationship, and so after, like, I don't know, six months, I had an opportunity to share the gospel. I'm not one of those guys that forces it, like, hey, you know, if you die tonight, you're going to go to hell. You know what I'm saying? I don't do that. I, I wait for the, op- the, the opportunity, and so after, like, six months of talking to this guy, I had the opportunity to witness to him, and I shared Jesus with him. I shared the cross. I shared forgiveness. I shared all this stuff. I lay my heart out there, and the guy goes, you know what? Yeah, me and Jesus are tight, man. Yeah, thank you. We're good, though. I'm good, you know? Which was kind of like a little bit discouraging to me because I knew this guy's life. I lived in the apartment right across from him, and I knew exactly how this guy lived. And this guy, he was basically like a gigolo. I mean, he had a different lady to his home every night of the week. He liked to go clubbing, which is not a bad thing, but he liked to bring home ladies from the club every night, which was a very bad thing. And so I'd be up late studying my Hebrew flashcards, near my window, you know, and I'd be like, a wound to sin, a wound to sin. And I'd look out, and this dude would be coming down with another lady, and I'd be like, a wound to sin. There it is right there, you know what I'm saying? Like, bam. Immediate application. I saw this guy, by my account, he had hooked up with every single female in the lower Los Angeles area. Seriously. Yeah, I mean, this guy, everyone. And so I asked him, I said, dude, hold on a second. You're telling me you're tight with Jesus? What about your lifestyle? How come I always see you bringing girls home from the club? And he said, yeah. He said, oh, man. He said, listen, every time I sleep with one of those girls, he says, I wake up the next morning and I ask Jesus to forgive me. And I told him this. I said, probably stupid. I said, God doesn't hear your prayers, man. Because they're not sincere. Now, he could have punched a hole through me because he was jacked. I mean, he was from Jamaica. I mean, he was like, bam. He, he probably could have killed me. I had to be prayed up when I said that, okay, when I evangelized like that. But I wanted to tell the guy the truth because I didn't want him to be deluded because 2 Corinthians chapter 7 says one of the fruits of repentance is an eagerness to clear yourself. Which means when you do bad, it's not like you're just like, oh, I did bad, ain't no big deal. There is an eagerness there to get that behind you and not only to get it behind you, to tell everybody you got it behind you. There's an eagerness to clear yourself. So it's like, it's, it's like you're, you're like telling people, hey, did you see my Facebook post? Did you see I stopped doing what I was doing for years? Did you know I repented? I didn't even know you were doing that. Did you know? Did you know? Did you know? There's an eagerness there to put that behind you. And this guy had none of those characteristics at all of genuine repentance. He was quite comfortable in his sin. And here's the deal. The presence of salvation, friends, it's not the absence of sin. It's the presence of a fight. 
Connor got whooped, but at least he put up a fight. You know what I'm saying? This guy had no fight. He was a dead fish floating downstream. And I said, dead fish floating downstream. If there ain't no battle, bro, in Spanish, no bueno. It ain't no good. Anyway, not belaboring the point, but you get the picture. The first reason why, there's many professing people that say, I believe in Jesus. But they don't live any difference because they're not Christians. And here's the deal. Grace means that God does not expect you to be perfect. But grace doesn't mean that you can ignore God. He's not demanding perfection, but he is demanding us to be decisive. And there's a difference. But. So that's the first reason I tell people. The second reason I tell people why people, you know, they, they don't change or they keep like stuck in the same patterns of sin year after year is because people don't understand how they change. They have no idea how it happens. In fact, our default mode for changing goes a little bit like this. This is our default formula, okay? Information plus application equals transformation. Just tell me what to do. I'll do it, and then I'll be like Jesus, right? That's kind of our default mode. Now, the problem, though, with this formula is that it's fundamentally flawed. In fact, it's missing one genuine, very important component to change. God. It's just willpower, is all this is. This formula is sub-Christian. It's no different than if you went to a Tony Robbins seminar or Dr. Phil. They're going to give you information plus application equals transformation. And the problem with that, the Apostle Paul says this, if change were possible through merely striving to keep the law, then Christ died for nothing. If the top formula were true, then Jesus wasted his time coming here and living for 33 and a half years and dying on a cross. He could have just stayed in heaven and grabbed a bullhorn. Hey, did you hear me the first time? It's in the Old Testament. Read it again, bro. Get to work. He could have just done that. But there's one fundamental message that's throughout the pages of Scripture. There's one fundamental tone. You can't do this on your own. You can't. This is impossible to keep on your own. In other words, it takes Christ to live the Christian life. If John Owen were here, he'd tell you, there is no death of your sin apart from the death of Christ. There is no power if you're disconnected from the power of the cross. And if change were possible by merely understanding the law, then Jesus could have saved himself a lot of heartache and pain and just stayed in heaven and written us more Bible chapters and verses, right? In fact, if there was no fall, if Adam and Eve never fell into sin, then indeed the law would be the solution to all of our problems. But we have a problem, friends, it's bigger than willpower, Right? The fundamental we think we change is broken. We think the top formula is how people change. You know, one of the Puritans, a guy named Walter Marshall, noticed this. Walter Marshall said this. He said, The question that most people have when they start coming to church is, What good thing shall I do? When they should be asking the question, How shall I be enabled to do anything good? That's our default mode. We come to church, we join a church, we're like, here I am, God, tell me what to do, I'll sign up, whatever you want me to do. And, and here's the deal. 
we, we never really start to grapple with the fact that I can't change on my own. And here's the question I have. C- could, can a person be saved without understanding sound theology? Do we, do we tell people, like when we witness or evangelize, do we say, hey, listen, believe whatever you want about God, you'll go to heaven when you die. You know, call them Allah, Buddha, Jesus, Carl, you know, call them whatever you want. Hey, believe whatever you want theologically and you'll get to heaven as long as you're sincere. Do we tell people that? It's an easy one there, right? No, right? If that's the case with salvation, why in the world do we think people can believe anything and pursue sanctification? Why do we insist upon such precise knowledge on the front end? In fact, we have little cards, little tracks, you know. You believe Jesus, you know, raised from the dead. You believe he's born virgin. You believe he's sinless. You believe Jesus. We have all this information on the front end. And then when someone gets saved on the back end, we hand them a Bible, pat them on the back and say, go get him, tiger. It's like we assume that they know everything already they need to change. And here's the deal. God can no more save a person without sound theology than he can sanctify or change a person without sound theology. And I know it's, it, doctrine is controversial today. I know we, we live in a day where when I look at our website stats, our doctrinal statement is the least looked at part of our website. People don't care who leads the church or what we believe. They don't really care at all, you know? Do we have a children's program? How's the music? You know what I'm saying? That's what they're concerned with. But listen, doctrine matters because doctrine, healthy doctrine, the Bible has the idea of a bone that's in order and works function properly, right? Sound doctrine is not just like, I'm right, you're wrong, you're stupid. Sound doctrine is, it's healthy. It leads to health. It leads to holistic living. And God can no more change you without good theology than he can save you without good theology. And the reason why people can sit in churches for years and never change or change very little is because they are still operating under that information plus application equals transformation. And they forget it takes Christ to live the Christian life. Jesus did not just come here and die to get you out of hell and into heaven. He came here and died to get God out of heaven and into you. Christianity is more than just your afterlife. Christianity is as Biggie Smalls, the rapper said, it's about your everyday struggle, bro. That guy who sits next to you in the cubicle that never wears his shoes from nine to five, that's what the gospel's for, bro. Not just for your afterlife. It's for Monday morning. And listen, we have to wrap our minds around this because I talk to a lot of people. They have given up on Christianity. They're like, they've checked out. And I I meet with them, we have lunch, and I'm like, hey, bro, what's going on? I haven't seen you. And they're like, I can't do it anymore. I'm like, well, you can't do what anymore? And they're like, live the Christian life. I can't do it. And then I have to explain to them, like, listen, you can't live the Christian life. You you can't do it on your own. You can't do it in your own power. But they get frustrated because they keep sliding back into that hole that they've crawled out of a thousand times before. And they're like, I'm giving up. I'm done. I'm tapping out. But it takes Christ to live the Christian life. And we have to re-understand that. That's why this morning, it's, it's all about how do people really change? Because the Apostle Paul never said, just do it. That makes a great Gatorade commercial, right? Just do it. Information, application, here I am. You know what I'm saying? Go after it. Go hard. Leave it on the floor, right? Paul never said that. Paul said this. He said, if you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. 
Change does not happen, Paul said, by self-effort. Change happens through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Now, the question we have, I guess, in our culture today is, how does this happen? If you bring up the Holy Spirit in church today, you're going to split your church pretty much, right? Tommy, it may be different over here in Deltona, but whenever people like want to visit my church or have questions about my church, it's usually about the Holy Spirit. Like, you know, how active is your church in the Spirit? And they want to have all these questions. It's like they want to check your Holy Ghost thyroid gland. Like, are you hypo-charismatic or hyper-charismatic? You know what I'm saying? Seriously, is it like a Bible study there or is some crowd surfing going on? You know what I'm saying? Like, I want to know what's going on, right? So people want to check your Holy Ghost thyroid gland. It's like before they visit, I get it. But here's the deal. We cannot neglect the Holy Spirit. He is God. And there is something fundamentally different between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Amen, right? God's like, do it. And they're like, we got it. And he's like, good luck, bro. You know what I'm saying? I'm going to give you 39 books of failure. Because so often we see the Holy Spirit being used in ways and perverted in ways or at least talked about being used in ways that we just know aren't godly. People laying on the floor, laying $100 bills in their chest, and we like, well, that's not of God. So I'm going to put crying scene tape around all the passages that talk about the Holy Spirit in Scripture. And we're going to be like, hey, keep moving, folks. Nothing to see here. Ain't no Holy Spirit. He, he, he checked out 2,000 years ago. He's back in heaven now. You know what I'm saying? Go about your business. That's how we view him because it's controversial. But we cannot neglect God the Holy Spirit today. So the question we have is, how is this done? How do you walk in the power of the Holy Spirit? If I need to be on my guard against doing things in my flesh, how in the world can I be sure it's God or it's me? How do I know? Well, here's the good news. Ephesians 3 was written to answer that question. Ephesians 3 is a manual on how to be spirit-filled. It's a how-to manual. What's rad is this text, it's kind of like a telescope. Because Paul says the exact same thing, pretty much, in three different ways. In fact, the, the way the Greek is written here, allow me to get geeky for a second, okay? The way the Greek is written, Paul says something, and then he re-explains it and says, well, specifically, here's what I'm talking about. And then he re-explains it again and says, and here's what I'm talking about. He does it three different ways. He says the same thing three different ways. Paul wants us to get this. This verse is like a telescope, same truth, three different angles. And Paul starts off in verse 16 and says this. He says, I'm praying that you may be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. I'm praying that y'all would walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we're like, amen, Paul, thank you. How do I do it? Well, verse 17, he goes on further and he clarifies what he's talking about. What I'm saying is, this is from the Jeff Eckert version of the remix, okay, from the Greek, right? What I'm saying is, I'm praying that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That's a little bit clear. The way that the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, empowers our life is through faith. It's when we believe the gospel. You will never have fellowship with God on the basis of your law keeping. You will only have fellowship with God on the basis of faith in the gospel. That's how you walk. You walk by faith, not by sight, I just heard. Yeah, amen. The gospel is not something that you just believe when you get saved and then you leave for an unbeliever later on. The gospel is something that we daily meditate upon and believe. And as we put our faith in the finished work of Christ, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in our heart in a powerful way. He's always there. But he kind of kicks his shoes off and puts his feet up on the couch and says, I'm at home. I can do whatever I want here. 
As Thomas Goodwin, the Puritan, said, If a man must be sanctified, he must believe in Christ his justifier, not Christ his sanctifier. Which means, don't just believe you have the Holy Spirit to fight your sin. Believe that Christ died for you, and you'll have the Holy Spirit to fight your sin. Not splitting hairs here, but it's very important. Theology is important. Paul says, as we believe the gospel, we're spirit-filled. But just to make sure that none of us are confused, he says the same thing in a third way. And he gets really specific. He says this. Specifically, I'm praying that you are so rooted and grounded in his love that you and the whole church will have strength to comprehend the breadth, length, height, depth, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that, here's the purpose, you may be filled with all the fullness of God. How do you walk in the power of the Holy Spirit? Paul says it's by studying. It's gathering with your church family, with all the saints. It's gathering, and it's diving deep into the four-dimensional love of God. And as we, you know, it takes a village. If Hillary Clinton were here, she'd tell us. It takes a village Right to understand this because it's more than your knowledge. You have to get together with all the saints, Paul says, because it's bigger than you can get your hands around. The love of God is. And you link arms with all the saints and you talk about God's love for you and you study the four dimensions of that, which are, it's, it's beyond knowledge, he says, but you, you pursue it. And as we soak deeply in the love of God for us, the power of Christ flows through us. That's how it works. So our main takeaway this morning is this, if you're taking notes. I know we're getting deep here. I don't want anyone to let go of the rope, you know. If you want to be spirit-filled, if you want to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, then meditate deeply on the four-dimensional love of God. Gather with your church, gather with your home group, gather together with saints, and begin to dive deep into, man, this relationship that God has given me and how he's, he's never going to give up on me. That's how people change. Now, the reason this concept, it's not even a concept, the reason this reality, this truth is so important is because the way you fight sin is through loving Christ more than you love your sin. I mean, when it comes down to it, the reason that we don't change is because we love we love sin, and we love it more than God. I mean, the reason you, you sin after you're a Christian is because you still, there's a part of you that still loves your sin, still craves it, right? Nobody ever sins because of a lack of information, right? I didn't know uh, sex before marriage was a sin. I didn't know adultery. I didn't know stealing out of the petty cash fund at work was a sin. I got to plead ignorance on this one. I wish someone would told me, you know, I had no idea. It's not how it works. The reason we sin is because we love sin. And so the reason why born-again, real genuine Christians still sin is because it's fun. There's a part of us that derives pleasure from sinning. And I know some of you are getting scared right now because you're thinking, what kind of church is this that says sin is fun? Because every church you've been to, the pastor's like, sin's not fun. Bible study and prayer, those things are fun. You know what I'm saying? Listen, I didn't make this up. This is in the Bible. The Bible says there is pleasure in sin for a what? Season. That ain't a Bud Light commercial, bro. This is from the Bible. 
Dilly dilly, right? This is what it says. Two of you got that one. Um, but here's the deal. If you don't think sin is fun, you're doing it wrong, right? Because th- th- here's the deal. The Bible even says that sin is fun. Because our hearts are perverted, they're wicked, so they go after things that are sinful. That's the reality of the situation. Now, here's the deal. The Bible also says sin has a heavy price tag on it because there's pleasure in sin, dot, 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 for a season, which means that merry-go-round, do, 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 the carnival is going to stop eventually, bro. So, you know, sinning is kind of like parachuting, or no, excuse me, that's skydiving without no parachute on. You jump out of the plane, you're 10,000 feet, like, woo, this is awesome, I'm going so fast, I can see the Ponce and Lighthouse over there, and this is amazing, this is... and all of a sudden, I ain't got no parachute on. This is not going to end well. And so it's fun for a season, and then it deceives us and kills us. And anyway, I, I say all this because the reason that we choose sin is because we enjoy it. And listen, your affections always choose for you. Your heart is the 500-pound silverback gorilla in the room. It's always going to win. Whatever you want, you will do. That's the bottom line. Thomas Cramner, another one of our heroes, said this, what the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. That's the way it is, bro. And that's why, listen, it's, it's useless to reason with people who are knee-deep in sin. I've done it a lot of years. It doesn't work. You can sit across the table from someone that's doing anything, bro. It could be an axe murder, and they're going to have some kind of reason for why they're doing what they're doing, and your rationalizations aren't helping. Because no matter what they're doing, they have justified themselves. They found a way to jury-rig their conscience to somehow approve of what they're doing. Doesn't matter what it is. In fact, I'll give you an example from Scripture. 2 Samuel, King David. Remember, he, he got caught with his hand in the cookie jar. Remember that? He was, uh, he was not at war. He was wandering around on his palace, his rooftop. And he sees Bathsheba. He steals her. You know the story. Sleeps with her, sends her husband off to death, all this stuff. It's shocking, right? But, but here's really the shocking part. David was backslidden after this for like over a year. In fact, some theologians calculate it was like 18 months that he was backslidden and unrepentant. The man after God's own heart, 18 months, he somehow was able to rationalize away this and murder and I don't think David like skipped out on church. I don't think people were like, hey, hey, where's David been? You know, we were missing a heart player on the worship team and we had to bring in an alternate. You know what I'm saying? I don't think that's the way. I think David was there every week. I think he was still writing psalms and hymns and all this stuff and leading in worship. I think he was on the front row raising his hands. But in his mind, he had somehow jury-rigged his conscience to explain away what he did. Because what the heart wants, the, mind, the, the will chooses and the mind justifies and so he probably, in his mind, like, just totally, ju- he was like, you know what, Bathsheba had it coming, you know, out there late in that skimpy dress, and, you know, Uriah was cheating on her anyway, and so I know I was trying to show her a good, you know, time and a home life, and he probably had reasons for why he did what he did, to feel better about what he did. And that's why when, when Nathan the prophet comes to him, remember that? Remember the Nathan rebukes him? He don't rebuke him straight up. No, you don't go head to head. You'd like a used car salesman. You come along the side and come in the back door, you know what I'm saying? Because... Uh, his conscience had somehow jury-rigged that this was okay, and so he ain't going to walk in and say, hey, bro, you sinned. That ain't going to work anymore, and someone walks in, you're going to buy this car. I am, yes, thank you, you know? That ain't the way it goes. 
So Nathan comes in, and he goes in through the back door because he didn't want to activate David's inner defense attorney. So he comes in, he says, David, I got a problem. Hey, what's up, man? Nathan, what happened? Well, there was this guy. He had a little ewe lamb, and a little ewe lamb he ate from his table and his plate, and, and he drank from his bottle, and he slept in his bed at night, and on Christmas cards, he was in a sweater, the little ewe lamb. He was being held, and he was with the family, and, and some of y'all, that's kind of weird, man, but listen, what's what happened? And, and then Nathan says, and here's what happened. Some dude broke into the guy's house and stole the little ewe lamb. And David, man, he's, he gets mad. He goes, the man that does that shall die. And Nathan says, gotcha. Gotcha, Sniggles. That's you the man. You're the guy that did it. Now, what is that teaching us? It's teaching us. This is what it's teaching us. What the heart wants, the will chooses, and the mind will justify. And so Nathan has to creep in the back door to even get David to condemn himself because he wasn't condemning himself for what he'd done already. Anyway, the point is, the reason we sin is because we enjoy sinning. We choose sinning above God. We think this is going to give us more pleasure than obeying God will. That's why we do it. And therefore, the question is this, how do you stop sinning then? How do you change? John Owen, again, he says this, the way you kill sin is by starving the love of sin. You must kill it at the root. In other words, you know, I think he was probably at the you know, the boardwalk in Daytona, he saw someone playing whack-a-mole, and all these sins pop, and he said, listen, it ain't gonna work, bro. You gotta go right to the root. You gotta unplug that sucker from the wall. Because otherwise, you're gonna be going over here, putting on a fire. It ain't gonna work that way. You have to go right to the root. You have to fight the love of sin with a superior love for God. This is the way it happens. And that's why when Christians fall into sin, is because of one reason their hearts begin to wane in their love for God. The reason a man has an affair is not because he doesn't love his wife anymore, it's because he doesn't love his God anymore. You've got to climb a tree before you can fall out of it. And that's why 1 John says this, do not love the world nor the things in the world. Here it is, for when you love the world, you don't have the love of the Father in you. John's saying this, listen, you're either going to be full of the love for the world or the love from God. Which one's going to control you? And that's the point. Listen, when our hearts aren't full of a four-dimensional four love of God, where we're participating and sharing in the life of Christ with our church body and talking about how much He loves us, we're vulnerable. We're totally vulnerable. Because what you're not getting vertically, you will go shopping for horizontally. You will. You'll go window shopping, bro. That's what John is saying. And so how do, how do you fight sin? How do you change? You've got to love God more than you love your sin. And here's the deal. I can't make you do that. I can't jump on your willpower and make you love God more. Even me getting up here and yelling at you and telling you, hey, love God. Love God now. That won't do it. We laugh, but you hear a lot of people trying on YouTube these days. Here's the deal. The way that your affections are stirred up for Jesus the way that you love him more is you've got to remind him that he loves you first. 1 John 4, this is all built on theology. We love him because he first loved us. I know it sounds crazy, but this is what leads to some pretty counterintuitive counseling. Like when you sit down with someone and they're hooked on pornography or whatever, they can't get free, and you tell them, let me ask you a question. 
how much have you been thinking about how much Jesus loves you lately? And they're like, what? You shouldn't be coming at me with that. You should be coming at me with like, you know, brass knuckles, bro, and beat me up because, but here's the deal. The reason that you're in that is because you don't believe that he loves you. That's why you're in that. You're settling for broken cisterns, Jeremiah said. Things that can't hold any water. And so it sounds counterintuitive when you grasp this, but the reason that you're falling for your sin so easily is because you don't believe in the love of God truly in your heart. And here's the deal. The more we understand how much God loves us, the more we'll be free to express God's love through us. And here's the deal. Jesus loves you so much. Before he was even crucified, he was beaten to a pulp. He was spit upon. He was called Beelzebub. You don't like it when someone says something bad about your name, right? Your reputation? You want to keep your, your name, the word on the street about your worth, you want to keep that spotless. And you get very offended if someone even alludes to the fact that you've done something improper or wrong. How much more when God comes to earth, God in the flesh, and is called Satan? He did all this, he endured all this for us. Because he loves us. And keeping our hearts full of a sense of God's love for us is the strongest preventative against temptation in the world. I have never talked to someone who was knee deep and say something like pornography because it's so prevalent today. I've never talked to someone that said, you know what, I'm having great, amazing, quiet times, but at the exact same time, I'm knee deep in the struggle with porn. Never, never happened. We've got to get recaptured by the love of God daily because if we don't, we'll be vulnerable. We'll be vulnerable. But the more we grasp how much He loves us, the more our lives will be transformed. You know, I heard a story that illustrates this beautifully recently. And uh, it, it involves a pastor. He's a pastor uh, up north. And um, gets a phone call one night. It's a Saturday night. It's really late. He gets a phone call, and uh, it's the police. And they're like, yeah, we picked your son up. He's got a DUI. You've got to come down here and get him. So he gets out of bed. This pastor goes down to the, the precinct, walks in. I'm here for my son. I'm going to bail him out, whatever. Sorry, we don't know what you're talking about. There's no one here by that name. He gets in his car, drives to the next closest police station. Hey, I'm here. i got a phone call. here for my son. here to bail him out. Sorry, we don't know what you're talking about. There's no one here by that name. Now he's confused. What in the world's going on here? Drives to two other precincts. Same deal. His son's not there. So he says, okay. His son uh, had fallen into some really, really dark and deep habits, some drug addiction. And basically his son had cut off all communication with the family. But the dad and the father and the pastor knew this. He knew that in very recent days he had been staying at a crack house. He'd been living in this, this, they call them flop houses, which is where you walk in with your drugs, you shoot up and you flop on the ground. He knew his son had been hanging at this flop house, and so he said, you know what, I'm going to go to that flop house, even though it's like three in the morning, and I'm going to see if anybody there knows where he's at. They may have some answers. So he drives to this flop house, middle of the night, walks into the house. There's all these people just crashed all over the floors, needles, bottles, just drugs everywhere. And he goes into one of the back rooms. His son is there asleep on a mattress. There's his son. And he, he kneels down and he kisses his son. He stands up and he leaves. 
And he goes to church. I guess he preaches that morning. Anyway, as a few weeks later, the son comes to the house to see his family. Son had cut off all communication, had gone off the deep end. All of a sudden, son starts showing up. And uh, dad's stoked, doesn't want to spook him, doesn't say anything about anything. Like, hey, why are you here? Just kind of enjoys it. Anyway, the son starts coming around the next week. Then he starts coming around a couple times a week. Next thing you know, he's at the house all the time again. He's like re-ingratiated himself into this family again. And so finally, after a few months, the dad is like, I got to ask my son what happened here. So he, he, you know, he talks to the son. And he's like, hey, what, what's going on? What, what changed? Why are you coming back? What, what, what made you want to come back to your mother and I and your brothers and sisters and everything? He said, dad, you don't know? And he said, no, what? He said, it's that night that you came to the house where I stayed. He said, that was my friends and I that night that called and pranked you. We told you, they were the, you were the, we were the police because we knew you had to preach the next morning. We thought it'd be so funny to picture you driving around to the different police stations and walking in for your wayward son. And when you get to the counter, they have no idea what you're talking about. We thought it'd be hilarious. He said, Dad, he said, we had no idea that you would come to the house where I lived. And he said, when you pulled up in the driveway that night, he said, all of us were awake and partying. He said, but we dove for the beds and pretended like we were all asleep because we didn't know what you would do. And he said, when you walked in and stood over me, he said, I was ready for you to kick me as hard as you could because you'd be so mad. And he said, but you know what changed me, Dad? He said, you didn't kick me. You kissed me. You kissed me. Friends, that is the gospel. It is God looking down at us with our wayward hearts. And when he had the right and the power to wind up and kick us as hard as he could, he instead kicked his son and he gave us a kiss. And there's no way that we can internalize that at any deep level and it not affect our lives. So my encouragement this morning is to get close enough to your religion to actually allow it to change you. Let's pray.